This morning we'll be in Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. Before we get to our text, kids, what does it mean to inherit something? What does it mean to inherit something? Have you ever been given something that belonged to someone else? That's kind of getting at what inherited, but it's even more than that. When I was a little boy, my granddad Montini taught me to fish. He showed me how to bait a hook, how to cast, how to watch my bobber and know when to set the hook. I caught my first fish with him up at what was then Hereford Manor Lake near Zealand Opal. And I took my love of fishing with me to Sterling, Kansas, and would fish nearly every day during the summer at Sterling Lake. I think I've probably shared some of those stories before. When my granddad passed away, I inherited, right, I was given his fishing rod and reel, which is something I still use today. I inherited something that wasn't mine, that I didn't earn, but because my granddad loved me, he wanted me to have something that was special to him. This morning in our text, a man comes up to Jesus and asks about inheriting something. Something way more valuable or special than a fishing pole, as valuable and special that is to me. He asked Jesus how to inherit eternal life. Now remember, kids and adults, inheriting something means it is given to you. But he asks, how, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? There is nothing we do to inherit something. It's because of a relationship that we inherit something. So let's read Luke 18, 18 through 30 as we come to our text today. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, 
What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we pray that as we come to this text, which is often difficult for us to understand, sometimes difficult for us to hear, certainly difficult for us to follow, that you would transform our lives by your very word, the living word, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. So, last week we heard Jesus tell the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Both were going up to the temple to pray. And we were confronted in that parable with the question, do you trust in yourself for righteousness? Do you trust in your own goodness? Do you trust in yourself? And we saw that Jesus is merciful to, know, to those who know they are not righteous. Right, the, the, tax, the Pharisee thought of himself as the one who deserved God's favor, and the tax collector knew that certainly not him, but Jesus says no one deserves God's favor. The week prior, which meant that we flipped, flopped text, was Jesus welcoming the little children, or literally the infants, to him. And the question from the text was, are we like these little children? Are we like infants who need everything done for them? That an infant cannot do anything for themselves, but only receive what is given and done for them. And the question from the text, are we like those little children? We saw that Jesus welcomes those who are like little children. We saw what it was to be like a child and to receive like a child. And this morning our text is within this context of these two, this parable, this teaching of Jesus, and this experience that Jesus had with these parents bringing their infants, their little children, to him. And Jesus uses the interaction with the ruler to help us understand from a slightly different angle what it means not to rely on ourselves, our accomplishments, our wealth, our power, our good for life in his kingdom or for eternal life. Again, notice how the ruler asks the question, what must I do? The assumption in the question is that he can do something to earn the inheritance. Do you rely on yourself for the inheritance, for eternal life, or do you fully understand it as a gift? That's the question that confronts us 
in the question that the ruler asks is often the question of what must I do? Right? It's, it's quite humorous almost that the ruler asks the question this way, what must I do to inherit something? Do we rely on ourselves for eternal life? Do we fully understand it as a gift? And the main point of our text is that because Jesus is God, he does the impossible. He gives eternal life. He gives us his inheritance. We're going to look at how no one is good enough in the God of the impossible. Because Jesus is God, he does the impossible. He gives eternal life. He gives us his inheritance. Right, he is the one who has eternal life. And he gives it to us. He gives us his inheritance. So first, not good enough. In Luke's Gospels, this ruler, we, we read it and we're like, well, who is this ruler? We might think, well, maybe he's like some governor or something like that. Well, in fact, in Luke's Gospels, the rulers are the Pharisaic scribes, right? You remember the, sometimes the terms scribes and Pharisees, they were just, scribes were just a part of the Pharisees. They were Pharisaic scribes who represented the Pharisees. So they were a part of the Pharisaical group, the Pharisees. And they represented them on the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was like the local supreme court, right, for the Jewish people. There were 23 to 27 on this court, elders from the community, some made up of Pharisees, some made up of Sadducees, some made up of the, high pri- the family of the high priest, and they served on this court, the Sanhedrin. They were well-respected elders in the community. And they be, made decisions according to the law of God. So intrinsically, in, in, at, least, at least in the sense of people, people's uh, assumptions and of, of people on this court, they were good people. Right? They were good. They knew the law of God. They followed the law of God. They made rulings according to the law of God. They were good people. So this good person, this ruler comes to Jesus and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. Now, a lot of times when the Pharisees come to Jesus, it's like they're trying to set a trap for him. This Pharisee seems to be very genuine in his question. He comes to Jesus wanting to know what this eternal life that Jesus has been preaching about, how does he receive it? And he comes to him and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in the way that Jesus often does, he kind of redirects by asking him, why do you call me good? No one is good, Jesus, right? Jesus is reminding him of what he believes 
even though he may not fully believe about himself, what he philosophically believes about the world that no one is good except for God. God alone is the one who is good. And is a challenge by Jesus to reflect on his ministry as it relates to God and the only true good person in, in existence. Right? And if the, if the ruler sees goodness in Jesus' ministry, this level that he would actually address him as good teacher, which would have been a very, very uh, un- unlikely or not often used reference to someone because of the Jewish understanding that no one was truly good. He comes to him and says, good teacher, and Jesus kind of flips it, and he's like, if the ruler could see the level of goodness in Jesus' ministry, that he would call him good teacher, might he realize that the kingdom of God was present in Jesus? It's almost like Jesus saying, hey, think. (laughs) Hey, man, hey, over here, think. Think what you're saying. If I am good and if only God is good, then who am I? And what am I doing? Right? This quote-unquote good man who is better than most. I mean, we, we, would, we would say that. Everybody probably in his, in his society would say that is challenged by Jesus to think about his perception of himself as good and as Jesus as good. Right? Jesus knows that if this ruler takes the time to actually do some deep reflection, he would see that he is totally unqualified for the kingdom he was seeking. Right? When we truly see how each commandment is calling us to live, our response should be, how can anyone gain entrance into the kingdom? Right? Jesus is asking him, he's, he even like, gives him right, five of the six second half of the Ten Commandments. Right? The ones that, that pertain most specifically to our neighbor love. He quotes them to the man to even kind of try to get him to think, yeah, I probably don't keep those as well as I should. And his response was, I have kept them from my youth. <laughs> I've done it. Right? I'm, a, I'm a good person. Well, if you would uh, um, let me kind of do a deep dive here. This will take a little bit, so... Please bear with me. But one thing that I think is helpful for us, that should have been what Jesus was trying to get this ruler to do, would be to think through, in what ways might I not keep these commandments? Right, and I'm going to go to the sixth commandment because usually what the response is when someone asks us, are you good, You're, or the response is, well, I've never killed anybody. Right? That's kind of the bar that we set right for our good. Well, I've never killed anybody. But look at what the Westminster Larger Catechism says about the Sixth Commandment. And that 
And if you've never looked at the larger catechism before, it does this for all of the commandments. And as one of our um, uh, candidates for, uh, for officer said to me a while ago, going through the larger catechism, man, I didn't know how sinful I actually was. <laughs> right? And that's exactly the response that Jesus was, at, was looking for from this ruler. So here's what the larger catechism says about the duties required of the sixth command, in the sixth commandment, right? Thou shalt not kill. The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to to the unjust taking away the life of any. By just defense, they're, they're against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, sleep, labor, and recreations. By charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. Away the life, protecting the innocent, the life of ourselves or of others, except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations. Provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to destruction of the life of any. Let me ask this question. Now, I know there's a lot. You don't have it in front of you. But I, out, I read what the, confe- what the catechism says about the positive aspects that we're supposed to do according to thou shalt not kill and those things that we are not to do. I don't think any one of us can honestly say that we've kept that commandment. Not even close. Yeah, I may have never killed anybody. But man, I've done a lot of that. Have I always courteously spoke to other people? Have I had forbearance with others? Have I had a readiness to be reconciled? Have I been patient, bearing, forgiving of injuries? Have I always protected and defended the innocent? 
I could go on and on and on. Had the ruler taken time to truly think about what it meant when Jesus asked if he'd kept these commandments. His response should have been, who can be saved? And notice that even if the ruler had kept all of these commandments, even if he could have done this deep dive like we just did in the sixth commandment with all of those commands, even if he had been able to do that and said, yes, I have kept every single aspect of keeping this commandment. Jesus leaves off the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. And as one commentator said, unchecked coveting precipitates the breaking of the second table of the law, bringing evil acts of murder, adultery, theft, and lying. All right, the Apostle Paul knew this all too well as he states in Romans 7. He says, Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. The rich man loved his possessions more than he loved God. He coveted something more than he coveted God. His materialism indicated that he did not love his neighbor as he loved himself and therefore was not a keeper of the law. He was not as good as he had thought. Right now, Jesus isn't making a case for universal asceticism, giving up all wealth and living a life of conscious denial and negation. Scripture does warn us against the greed of riches. But the apostolic father, Tertullian, was right when he called it irreligious to scorn this wonderful world and to refuse to enjoy God's bounty and thank him for it. He said it was goodness, goodness, goodness that made it all, and we are right to enjoy it. So Jesus wasn't saying that. He also wasn't recommending poverty for his people because poverty does, does not deliver us from the love of money. Right? As George MacDonald said, it is not the rich only who is under the domination of things. They too are slaves who, having no money, are unhappy for the lack of it. The money one has, the money the other would have, is in each case in each, the cause of eternal stupidity. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For, your treasure, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? He also said, no servant has two mas- can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that we looked at a few weeks ago, the parable of the rich fool and Luke, remind us of the same things. There's a proper respect of being rich, and, but there are, and there are, because there are disadvantages to having wealth. Primarily what it can do to our heart, to our soul. Right, it would be easy for us to think this applies only to the extra rich among us. But nearly all Americans are wealthy by a worldwide standard. We have almost everything we need and more. As one commentator put it, he said, For most of the world, our debts, our problems, and even our payments, we welcome luxuries. You know, later this week, I have a doctor's appointment for my yearly health checkup. My doctor is going to do uh, some te- look at some test results, take my vitals, and then give me a determination of my overall physical health. Likewise, Jesus, the great physician, is checking our hearts today. How we view money, how we view wealth, is a spiritual checkup for ourselves and our families. Where is our dependence? Are we like a little child or are we self-sufficient? Where do we invest our financial means? Investment to be able to care for ourselves and others in the future isn't bad, but do we use the means that God has given us? As our means increase, do we give to the mission and ministry of the kingdom? to the work of the kingdom in ways that might affect our lifestyle choices? Do we sacrifice this thing or this trip to be able to give more generously? This is what we see in our text. Being confronted with it, no one is good enough. Even if we gave all that we had away, no one is good enough. Right, Jesus says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, many have tried to explain away this ridiculous image of a camel going through the eye of a needle, right? Some would say, well, there was a small gate in the city wall that was sometimes referred to as the eye of a needle, and a camel to get through had to get down on its knees and had to crawl through to get through into the city. Baloney. Do not buy into that. Because if that's what Jesus meant, it meant that the camel could get into the kingdom of God by getting on its knees and walking through the door. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He is saying, think of an eye of a needle. Think of the camel, which was the biggest animal in Palestine. Can a camel go through an eye of a needle? No. It's impossible. The point is precisely the impossibility of a camel going through the eye of a needle. It would take a miracle 
for the camel to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus is telling the rich man and all the hearers of the word that the kingdom is inaccessible for human beings without the miraculous intervention of God. Who can be saved? Right? When Jesus tells them that this rich man cannot enter the kingdom of God, that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, who can be saved is the cry of the people listening to Jesus. Right? Because in their mind, they're thinking, if a rich person who has wealth, which was understood as a sign of God's blessing and could offer more alms and more sacrifices and do more things for God but can't be saved apart from a miracle. How can anybody be saved? If this man who we know to be good and has the ability to do good things, good things for God and good things for people, how on earth can any of us who don't have those means. If he can't make it, how on earth do we have a chance of making it? Jesus replies, what is impossible with men is possible with God. With God, it is possible for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. Because God is the author of all miraculous happenings a camel going through the eye of a needle, a rich man coming to salvation, or anyone else. Jesus replied to the question, who can be saved? What is impossible with men is possible with God. Whoever we are, regardless of our boastings or our attachments, he can do the impossible on our hearts. For the rich or the poor, the materialist or the idealist, there is one hope. We all must let go of possessions or passion or position or person and come to Christ alone. It is not I, but Christ in me is the only way. And Jesus says, the rewards of coming to him are going to be mind-blowing. More than we could ever hope or imagine. Right? Jesus' math doesn't make sense in the kingdom of the world. The odds that he gives are zero. So how does it work? How does anyone have hope? It's with God. In God alone thanks to His infinite grace, that all things are possible. Even like someone like you, someone like me, even a camel entering through the eye of a needle, what is impossible for us is possible with God. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
we thank you, Lord, that what is impossible is possible with you. But I pray that you'd help us to never, ever believe the lie that we deserve or have earned or maybe one time didn't deserve or earn but now we are good people Lord it is only because of Jesus that any enter the kingdom Lord, may we come to him like a child, like the chief among sinners, knowing what is impossible for us is possible with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by standing and singing together. Yet not I, but Christ in me. The music team will sing through the first verse and chorus and then welcome us to join in.